and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Didn't have my mic on there. So I love it. Not, no, mute, no. mute Brian, even for I, a minute. I got the mic on. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't hold him down for long. <laughs> All right, so today on the show, we're going to talk a little about field scouting. And you might say, well, wait a second, I don't even have my crop in the field yet. But keep in mind, our show goes all throughout the country and really throughout the world, uh, throughout North America, uh, especially here in the United States, as well as Canada. But uh, we do have listeners all over. And I, I just say this, we just want you thinking year round about field scouting, because so many things can change as you go through the season. So what I mean by all this is we all as farmers and agronomists, in my opinion, have to be flexible because we just don't know what's going to happen. And we want to be smart about where our dollars go. So it's one thing to make a plan. And believe me, I I like to make plans. I plan a lot of stuff a year or more in advance. Seriously, on the farm, any anything I do, I got a, I got a calendar and I, I mean, I'm planning it out. But then, then, as you know, we have weather, we have diseases that show up unexpectedly, or insects, or all of a sudden, oh, we have a lot more weed problems here. Um, the corn doesn't look quite right, or we've got this issue in the beans, and it's, not, it's just not going the way we want. So we have to continue making adjustments, and it's much, much harder to do that if you're not on a regular basis out in your fields checking things out. All right, so throughout the show today, our phone lines will be open if you'd like to call in. The number is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. Or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. Right now, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's now mailbag time with Brian and Darren. All right, Brian, this one comes from Steve, who said, I was curious if you guys had any information or literature about the conversion of a Bray 1 soil test result to a Malik 3 soil test result. I was looking at your website trying to find information, didn't find anything on this topic. Now, when you say Bray 1, Steve, we're thinking about phosphorus. When you're thinking about malic, I mean, obviously, you could be looking at malic extraction of micronutrients and yeah, I know, else, but so. I'm sure what he's talking about is phosphorus level on the malic test. So what you're going to look at instead of the P1, it's more the P2. So the P2 or the strong bray test for phosphorus correlates usually fairly well for with the malic test. So I, I'd, I'd put it to you this way too: there's nothing that's going to be exact. When we start talking about soil testing and we give you certain levels to be at and certain goals and all this, it's more about that you're close as opposed to, oh, I have to hit this exact number or I have a major problem. Not necessarily because, I mean, if I go even three feet over and I retest my soil, is the number going to be different? Probably. Now, hopefully it's not a lot different, but it's probably just a little bit different. Every lab is going to give you a different number. Um, and, I mean, a lot of times the P2 and the Malik test, let's say they were even running out of the same lab. Are they going to be close? Yes. Are they going to be exact? No. But I usually view them as, hey, they're, they're about the same type of thing. So the difference between the P1 and the P2, just to further explain that, P1 is what's available today. That's available phosphorus today. P2 is what's available today, plus what they believe is going to come available during the course of the growing season. Now, that can vary. 
as we all know, soil organic matter can break down faster or slower depending on heat, depending on moisture, overall microbial life, good drainage, lots of factors. So that's that's simply an estimate, and you kind of have to work with it from there. All right. Thanks for the question. Uh, I get this one from Rick. He said, you guys are talking about using Neonix to control grubs in your lawn. I'm wondering, what if I have a garden close by or chestnut trees? You mentioned those Neonix could work their way up in the plant. Would they work their way up in a garden or other things around? It may be a couple of months between the time I apply this for grubs and the time that I would harvest. Uh, is it possible for them to get pulled up into the plants that have roots where you applied the imidacloprid? Absolutely it is. Now, is there going to be a high level there? No. Is there going to be a high level two months from now? Absolutely not. All right. Uh, get a question that came in from Sam. He said, you guys are talking about drainage tile and mentioning doing that yourself. I'm wondering, what do people normally spend... Uh, to hire someone else to do drain tile. And I'm wondering, how much do people who work doing this make in a yearly basis? <laughs> well, it's like anything else. The more you work, the more you get paid. And one of the big factors when you're putting drainage in is, is it even dry enough to get in there and put the tile in? Or, like in our case where we farm, is the ground too frozen? So generally speaking, if there's a foot of frost, we can still do the work. But if there's more than a foot of frost, it's not going to happen. So generally, we're shut down sometime in early December, and then we are shut down all the way until usually mid to late April. So we have a lot of months where we can't work doing that job there. Um, in terms of what the contractor is going, if somebody else does it, what are they going to charge you? That's going to vary a lot depending on the situation. So, for example, if you live right next door to a guy who owns a tile plow and he wants to tile some of his and just simply run right through your property so you would get some done at the same time, well, guess what? You're probably going to get a pretty cheap rate. Might be 50 cents a foot. But if the person has to drive 100 miles away and they have to go back and forth on a regular basis and you have a complicated project and stuff like that it might be a dollar or a dollar 50 or more per foot that they're going to charge to put this tile in the ground so yeah it just a lot of variance there yeah a lot of things to to think about on that no doubt about it but thanks for the question we do really appreciate that we'll get back into some more ag phd mailbag questions here in just a little bit but first, we want to have a discussion about field scouting. What are some of the things that you need to be watching out in your fields before planting, during planting, right after planting, because we want to make sure we stay ahead of anything that's happening there so we can maximize our yield potential. So talk about field scouting and take your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. We'll be right back. If one of your spring chores is getting the side dress bar back in shape, 360 Yield Center has a better idea. Hi, I'm Greg Souter, 360 Yield Center. Rather than throw more money into bearings and colders, replace him with 360 wide drops for your side dress bar. You'll never replace bearings again. You'll get faster, more efficient nitrogen response. In our tests, that gives a six bushel boost. Less maintenance, more corn from 360 wide drops. Take a second and listen. 
You hear that? That's the sound of your roots growing where they've never gone before. There are additional nutrients and water in your soil, hidden in tough-to-reach spaces. With MycoApply Endoprime, hyphae attach to the root hairs to reach small areas inaccessible to big roots, even some that are tied up in the soil. Applied in furrow at planting, MycoApply Endoprime uses four, four unique species of mycorrhizal fungi to go where roots can't. Unlock the potential of your corn crop with MycoApply Endoprime, and by nurturing your soil today, you're helping to ensure future harvest will be just as bountiful. For more information, talk to your local retailer or visit valent.com slash endoprime. Always read and follow label instructions. Get tough on resistant weeds. Tough IVC is a selective, contact post-emergent herbicide that synergizes HPBD inhibitors and enhances the effect of atrazine. Tough IVC works fast and can significantly improve the control of weeds such as water hemp, palmer, and kochia today and help prevent the selection of herbicide resistance tomorrow. Tough IVC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough IVC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. What a big topic today on Ag PhD Radio to tackle field scouting. But here we are, late April. There are already things to be watching out in fields. And as, of course, as we get crops planted in the north and as crops start growing and getting some size to them further south, uh, there's going to be some different things depending on where you're at. So we'll start uh, with Harmon Wiltz here with DeKalb Asgro to talk just a little bit about that. And in Minnesota right now, Harmon, are you saying you're scouting fields to see if they're too wet to plant or too cold to plant? Or what are guys looking for out in fields right now? You know, I think really a little bit of both. Like when could we possibly get started? Be scouting uh, some of them, you know, low-line areas and also kind of keeping an eye on the temperature to say, hey, when projecting could we get started uh, to go? And uh, one of the keys is scouting, I think, uh, to make sure that we're not in too early. But yet every hour of planting right now would be business critical. So knowing when the right time is there, I think is key. We get a lot of questions about some of the different things going on. And I know one of the things that we've seen your company do on seed is increase the rate of insecticide. Are there certain bugs that we should be watching for around planting time and over the next couple of weeks here as guys are putting seed in the ground? You know, I think that that's one of the keys, really, is uh, in the old days, you know, you had things like wireworm, seed corn maggot, you know, some of that kind of stuff, even cutworm is, is important. As we've been able to come with newer technologies and add more volume of seed treatments, uh, some of those insects are a little less important. But uh, I do think that uh, you can have all the technologies in the world, but the best thing really is to be, you know, scouting, plant that, uh, put that seed in the ground, and then going back every week and scouting to see, hey, is there any activity on insects, disease? And the other most important thing really is, is that how is germination coming and are those little seedlings actually making progress? And if they're making progress, uh, we're in great shape. And if they're not making progress, then, you know, what is plan B? What do we do next? So uh, very important to be scouting. You know, I think right not only before should we be planting, but right behind the planter, too. Is our planter depth, the proper depth? Is the planting planter working? And then, hey, every week be in there for uh, for all the bugs and all the insects. And then, of course, is emergence doing well? And then, hey, next would be kind of focusing on are there any weeds coming that we need to make sure we are taking care of early? 
Yeah, getting after those weeds early is a big deal for yield, and this year every bushel is worth so much. Last year, there are a lot of farmers that I talked to that wished they would have had access to SmartStacks Pro a year earlier because they saw tons and tons of corn rootworm. Does that mean we're going to have more this year? And what what should guys look for as they start using that new technology? Well, you know, a couple things that we monitor a little bit is what are the rootworm pressures? What is the beetle? Lots and lots of beetles last year. Uh, obviously, number one priority for the SmartStack Pro is for those guys that are in continuous corn, because that's really where the western corn rootworm beetles and even some of the northerns were causing more troubles. And you tend to see, you know, four years of corn or more is when you start to see a little more activity on the current traits that are out there. So really nice to have a, a new technology with RNA technology in it that's very deadly uh, for those corn rootworms. I think the other thing for growers to kind of watch is what are we going to do with these uh, corn bean acres? Uh, you know, the extended diapause in the north can be a problem. Um, you know, the western variant as well as we move further to the east. So really nice to have that tool of the Stacks Pro in the toolbox for the next level of corn uh, rootworm that's out there. How about on the soybean side? I know you've got the new ExtendFlex soybeans out there in, in large quantity this year. Uh, what are some of the, the early soybean things? Because we're hearing so many guys talk about planting beans early. Even a few guys in Minnesota I've talked to just kind of stuck their nose out there just a little bit and put a few acres of beans in early in this cold soil just to see what had happened. What, what should they be watching for? You know, I think the biggest thing is uh, really scouting the look at, you know, are those beans germinating and are they making any progress or are we just kind of tucking them away and when they do so biggest thing would be is uh, typically we'd have seed treatment on there and really watch for any diseases or bugs that are coming because one of the key things is we can plant beans early but we really got to be careful to make sure if we need to replant we need to replant so watching the bugs i think is key and then the second thing really is what is our progress are these beans germinating and are they progressing or do we need to think about some replant as these cold soils are really, really cold as we go forward? So, and I would say the same thing as in corn, you know, behind that planter, are we getting the right planting depth? Are we in that one to one and a quarter inch, one and a half maximum? You know, are we putting on the top too shallow? So that would be number one, I think, is to make sure we're scouting behind the planter and doing a nice job, especially going from field to field, especially going from maybe a corn field from a small grain field, different places that, that planter has uh, changed and adjusted. And then I think in soybeans, you know, the big thing is, are we going to, what, what is the scouting program been on weeds? And um, are we putting a, a, a pre down early, which we'd highly recommend to do and, and then how to use the technologies going forward for weed control. Yeah, a lot of stuff going on. I just love this, Harmon. I think you could talk for another 10 or 15 minutes about all the little details that guys should be watching for out in fields, and it really brings to mind we just can't sit on our laurels. I know a lot of times we're working long hours this time of year putting in the crop, and, man, we got to be out there making sure that what we did put in the ground is is in the right place and doing well. I've been talking with Harmon Wiltz here with the Calbasco. Harmon, thank you so much. We appreciate having you on. Thank you very much. Call anytime. We like to talk about these things. You bet. We need to talk about these things and stay on the front side. Uh, I got Tom, uh, oh boy, Kilser. Is that right, Tom? Did I get your name right? 
That's good enough. That'll do. <laughs> Call me anything but late for supper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very. I'm not late for supper very often either. Sometimes supper comes and finds me though, so I have to be honest about that one. Hey, so we're talking about early yeah. season scouting. We talked corn and soybeans here a little bit. I think about all the guys that that are raising hay and forages and those types of things too. What are some of the things you'd advise uh, be, we be on the lookout for here early this season? Well, based on this winter and what we're seeing coming out of the winter is they need to go out and see if they have a hay field out there. Uh, I've been getting numerous reports of hay fields that were just wiped out. Uh, we had a La Nina winter, so it uh, switched back and forth tremendously in temperature and in uh, moisture, and that killed out a number of hay fields. So first you need to go look to see if you have one. Wow. Uh, that's the first challenge. Uh, and we have two, basically, three basically directions you can go. Uh, if just spots of the field are dead, then uh, some red clover and meadow fescue uh, go in with a no-till planter and just patch those spots. Uh, for the ones that the whole field is dead and you still need hay, then going in with meadow fescue, red clover, and oats, and the oats would give you at least a first cutting uh, that you wouldn't have had before. Uh, and then the third decision is um, maybe we're just better off to plant that to corn this year because nitrogen's so tight, and that'll be relatively inexpensive corn, and then go seed down another piece uh uh, that we were thinking of on corn. Uh, so those are the, the first questions that I have right out of the gate is, do you have a field out there? All right. Talk to us uh, about current right. field. Talk to us about current field conditions, Tom. Are guys able to get in and plant now if they want to? Are they able to make some of these uh, spot reseeding treatments that, that may be called for? They're going to have to pick and choose the field and uh, the conditions. We're t- your radio covers a huge area. Um, I'm down in Tennessee right now, and yes, we've had rain, but uh, we've had a bunch of warm and dry weather. I came from New York where I have a lot of contacts, and they're saying they can't even walk on their fields, much less drive on them. And then when you move up into uh, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, you're going to look at more uh, below normal temperatures and above normal rainfall. So it'll be tricky to be able to just slip in. You're going to have to be ready. Uh, to slip in and patch those fields when you get a chance. Yeah, being ready. The other is, part, is though, the other part of this scouting, though, is where is the stands at in their maturity? Uh, corn is going to be probably pretty late this year, simply because we can't get on the field, we can't do tillage, and it may be one of those years in ten where uh, it's going to be more economical to not plant corn and get your haylage in on time and then come back and plant corn afterwards, which is like absolute heresy. Oh, to farmer. it is. But uh, <laughs> it, it's like nails on a chalkboard. But it's uh, the fact of the matter is uh, the corn isn't going to be hurt uh, in yield or in quality as much as the hay crop will. And half of your hay crop is uh, usually taken in the first cutting. So sure, uh, sure. we are really pushing people to scout their fields. Uh, we're looking at the winter forage is going to come on. I think it's going to be a gangbuster of a crop. Well, that's good news. We, we need that. Hey, Tom, we're out of time, but thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. Stay tuned. 
warehouse. What can we do for you? Yeah, I'm looking for some nitrogen. All right, we're running low and it's awful pricey, but uh, let me check. Hold. The answer to low supply and high prices for nitrogen is Invita, a microbe with systemic nitrogen fixation. Invita works throughout the foliage and roots, providing a right place, right time source of nitrogen to maximize yield in corn, wheat, and soybeans. Yeah, we're all out, but... You know what? I'll take some of that Invita. <laughs> That's what I was going to recommend. Book your Invita while supplies last. Here at Farm Shop MFG, we keep hearing from the fans of our germinators. After seeing the results in his neighbor's fields, Devern in Missouri fully outfitted his planters with the germinator closing wheels. Now he says, the proof is in the pudding. After seeing our harvest results, I'm an enthusiastic supporter of the Farm Shop MFG germinator closing wheel. See more of what our fans are saying and order today for spring delivery at farmshopmfg.com. Come to the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event this summer. Here at Ag PhD, we're always looking for ways to support and encourage folks entering the ag industry. That's why we're devoting a full day, Saturday, June 25th, to the free Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event. Though this day is geared towards high school and college students as well as young farmers, anyone with a desire to learn more about agronomy is more than welcome. Our hands-on sessions in the field will include a comprehensive guide to scouting, ways to improve soil and crop health, the role of natural microbes in farming, and how to best collect and manage on-farm data. Plus, we're giving away tens of thousands of dollars in scholarships to eligible attendees. So whether you're a college student or just want some good agronomy information, this is one event you won't want to miss. It's the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships Day, Saturday, June 25th on the Hefty Farm near Baltic, South Dakota. Learn more and register at agphd.com. There are a lot of choices for closing systems in the market. 360 Wave has been topping them all on side-by-sides. More plants and ears, more bushels. They're in stock and ready to ship from 360. Most closing systems attempt to close from the top down. Wave closes from the bottom up, rolling moist soil over the seed, plus puts starter fertilizer in the sweet spot. There is still time to upgrade your closing system with 360 Wave. Learn more at 360yieldcenter.com. Whether or not, relentless control is what you get with Anthem Max Herbicide from FMC. Protect your season from tough broadleaf weeds and grasses with dual modes of action and overlapping residuals that also minimize resistance. With an easy-to-tank mix formulation and wide application window, Anthem Max Herbicide is ready when you are. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. We're taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD, or you can email us, radio at agphd.com. We're talking about field scouting on today's program, and one guy that I know has already been out field scouting a bunch and for quite a while is our friend Rob Dedman down in Arkansas. Rob, how you doing? Hey, guys. How are y'all today? Well, pretty good. I figured you'd be way too busy to talk to us today, but I wanted to ask, what are you seeing out in fields right now, and what should guys in your area be looking for? You know, it's, it's, the weather's been uh, fairly cool still so far, so we haven't had a lot of issues with our summer annual grasses and, and some of our summer broadleaf weeds yet. Uh, 
you know, we're getting this, getting this crop planted, getting our stands where we want them, and um, still battling a few winter weeds. You know, it's, it was such a mild winter for us that even even after burn downs where we didn't use a lot of uh, heavy residuals and stuff because of tillage passes that might need to be made, things like that, um, we're getting we're getting some of the winter vegetation that's wanting to come back on us. Interesting. So you've got a lot of resistant weeds down there, but in terms of the winter annuals, are many of those resistant to Roundup? So, you know, the only one that, that is confirmed resistant to Roundup is, is the ryegrass, and, which is an absolute monster for us down here. You know, a lot of guys want to, um, we try to apply dual on the really bad fields in the uh, in your metulochlor in, in the fall, but but with last fall being as, as, as you know hot and dry and mild as it was, that uh, it just didn't have the uh, longevity that it needed. You know, on Christmas Day, it was 85, and we just typically we got cooler temperatures. Uh, we're getting rainfall and moisture to keep it activated. We didn't have any of that, and it just it broke down and let go on us. And, and so we're fighting ryegrass this year really hard. So the, what? Uh, so what? So what are you doing? Oh, I was just going to say, so what are you doing with it then? If the dual didn't work, it's Roundup resistant, now what? Well, not only is it Roundup resistant, but a lot of it is starting to become Clepidum resistant. And so we're getting a double slap in the face, you know. Um, what, we, what we're attempting to do is to use Gramoxone when it's as small as possible yep. and, and kill it with Gramoxone or, or Paraquat. And... Um, which is, you know, if if you catch it in time and you can get plenty of coverage, then you can do a pretty decent job on it. But if you some of that that gets by and it gets a little bigger, coverage becomes a really major issue. Right. And and there's no way to to, to get it completely controlled like you want to. Yeah, that's got to be frustrating. So you were starting to say there there's something else. There is there another weed that you have problems with? Yeah, so the poana is starting to show signs, a little bit of signs of, of Roundup resistance. It's getting to where it's harder and harder to control with Roundup every year. All right, so changing gears, insects. I, I'm just curious, what do you have in your area for early season insects that you have to watch out for in all the different crops that, that you are scouting? I mean, what's kind of top of mind for you? Like, boy, if I see this bug, I know I got a real problem. Well, you know, really the only the only insect that I worry about this early um, is, is cutworms. You know, on the corn and on yeah. the soybeans, both. That sometimes where we've got some residue, some some leftover residue at and stuff, that they'll, they'll pose a little problem. Uh, we have to watch them on the the corn or the uh, cotton also. But uh, I, I really tell you that the, the the biggest insect that I that I'm fighting right now is is the uh, blackbird. They are just absolutely tearing us up on this corn. So blackbirds are. So are they pulling anything out of the ground as it's seeded, or when are they? When are they causing the problem? So yeah, it's, it's when the uh, the corn's in that ve stage. You know, before it yep. fir- fir- forms that first collar, that they're grabbing those little seedlings and they're and yep. they're pulling them up out of the ground. And typically, they're breaking it off. They're you know at the kernel. The kernel's not coming up with it, but. It's just creating some, some thin spots and some issues along wood lines and, 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 and ditches and stuff. 
Uh, sounds like you have a lot of stuff to watch out for there. We've been talking with Rob Dedman. He is down in the state of Arkansas, a consultant down there. Rob, thanks a lot for the time today. We want to wish you the best of luck down there. Hopefully things will warm up and uh, crops will be growing a little bit faster real soon. Hopefully. Hopefully it will. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's head just a little bit further south. we got Trey Kroger with us right now. He's an agronomist down in Mississippi. Trey, how's it going down there? Cold and wet. So oh, man. Like your former... you're, you're supposed to say it's lots warmer than for those guys up in Arkansas, but you guys are getting it too, huh? We are. March. It's uh, been very, very cool and, and very, very warm. Now, Rob was talking about ryegrass being really tough to get. Are, are you having trouble with any weeds that are that are carrying on through from the winter or getting a start early spring? Again, same story uh, as in Arkansas. Ryegrass is um, it's everywhere, and it's uh, it's getting more and more difficult to control. Um, you know, we've obviously developed resistance to glyphosate. We've developed resistance to plethodium. Uh, you know, I'm hearing word that it's actually developed resistance to paraquat. Uh, I don't know if that's confirmed, but that's that's the latest I've heard. Um, so, yeah, ryegrass is becoming very, very difficult to control. The only way to really effectively manage it is with a fall herbicide. That does a very good job. Okay. What would your fall plan be? If you could go back in time and take these acres that didn't get treated, what would they do? Um, usually we coordinate that with fall tillage. We'll get our fall tillage done, get all of our, you know, our beds reworked and then put out a product boundary probably goes on more acres than anything else. That that's what I hear a lot of, which is a premix of, uh, Metribuzin and Esmetolacor. Um, that goes out uh, after we do our fall tillage, a lot of times late October into November is the best time frame, And that does just a really effective job of controlling pretty much everything through the course of the winter so that we could drop in and plant corn clean or at least, you know, have minimal uh, spring wheat pressure, if you will, for planting soybeans or rice or cotton. Sure, sure. Yeah, we like the fall herbicide programs up here too, and there aren't enough guys doing them, but fighting some of these tough winter annuals and, uh, I don't know, I think about dandelion, I think about henbit, I think about quite a few weeds up here where those fall programs are just fantastic for us. Uh, okay, so what else besides weeds now? What else are you seeing out in fields? Are you having any insect issues when it's been this cold? I'm guessing it hasn't been too bad, but is it disease or, or what are you worried about now? Um, really, no insect pressure at all to speak of. It's just been so cold and wet that the, the biggest issue we're probably dealing with is, is one, just the wet weather, and then coupled that with there's some replanting. Uh, there's some soybean replanting, and I've heard a little bit of potential corn replanting. Um, in the southern parts of Mississippi Delta. But uh, we just really need a, a stretch of decent weather. It's just about time it gets dry enough for us to go to the field, and then it rains again. And what we're dealing with now is most of the light ground has been planted, and you know it's either up or it's coming up. Um, you know What we've got left is the heavy ground, and it obviously takes longer for it to dry out. So we just we can't get a decent window at all to get uh, – to get a good stretch of planting. The other issue that we're dealing with is the wind. It has been the windiest spring I've ever seen in my life, and it is blowing every day. And, I mean, it's blowing 20 miles an hour, so it's making it very difficult to get any spraying done. 
Yeah, it's been up here too. We, today's our first day we've had that wasn't super windy. And I, I know we were all geared up yesterday, had everything in place and ready to go and, and get out there and get stuff sprayed as fast as we can. But man, when it's windy every day, it's it's a challenge. And at least you guys are wet that your ground's holding in place. And we talk to a lot of guys where it's dry and they say, man, there's dirt blowing all over the place because it's windy every day and we're bone dry. We are not bone dry. Uh, <laughs> See, if we could just go halfway in between, we might have it. <laughs> well, you know, farmer's not in the perfect world every day. We just got to take what the good Lord gives us and deal with it. No, that's right. That's absolutely right. That's why we're talking about field scouting day. got to be keeping an eye on what's going on out there and, and make adjustments as you go. One of the guys that makes those adjustments is Trey Kroger down in Mississippi. Trey, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio today uh, with a field scouting discussion. We're going to dive back into the Ag PhD mailbag here shortly. You can get your questions in by emailing us radio at agphd.com or just giving us a call 844-44-AG-PHD. We'll be right back. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. The next generation of weed control in wheat, Wide AR Match Herbicide. Uh, I'm sorry, is this a typo? I mean, there's an AR in the middle of Wide Match. Mm-hmm, that's the name. It's called Wide R Match Herbicide. Oh, my bad. From the top. <clears throat> Wide R Match from Corteva AgriScience. It's not a typo. It's an upgrade. The AR stands for RLX Active for improved control of the toughest broadleaf weeds in wheat. Talk with your retailer to learn more. What's new from New Farm? Leopard Herbicide brings you exceptional planting flexibility for soybeans, field corn, and cotton. Leopard provides your spray plans with a fall or early spring option to boost resistance management. And did we mention it's a highly compatible tank mix partner due to its ultra-low use rate? Ask your dealer for Leopard Herbicide. Available for fall. Protect your empire. Rule your fields with dual modes of action. Low-use rate Authority Supreme Herbicide from FMC combines Group 14 and Group 15 modes of action for pre-plant and pre-emergence control of key broadleaf weeds and grasses. A preventative application keeps your fields clean when it matters most to crop productivity. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. Precision crop nutrition pays. And AgroLiquid has precisely what it takes to help you succeed. The right products plus the right expertise to give you guidance based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. While our clean, seed-safe formulations and lower application rates make planter fertilizer easier than ever. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. That's why Morton Buildings ensures that every machine storage and insulated workshop we build will provide superior strength and durability. 
As a 100% employee-owned company, we're all committed to being the industry leader with a focus on innovation, service, quality, and most importantly, customer satisfaction. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here, along with my brother Darren. We're broadcasting today from the Morton Studio. If you've got a question for us, the number is 844-44-AG-PHD, or you can email us, radio at agphd.com. So we were talking today about field scouting, and our number one piece of advice when it comes to field scouting is just simply this. Spend time in your fields all throughout the season. And that does not mean driving 60 miles an hour, or in our case in South Dakota, we can drive 80 miles an hour legally on some roads. Uh, (laughs) At that speed, um, you have no idea really what's going on in the field other than you can see a couple of patterns. And you know what? Even at 30 miles an hour, you can't see a whole lot. So it's really important to get out in fields. I cannot tell you how many calls I've gotten over the years. And how many agronomists I've talked to, and they say, oh, we've got this problem, or the farmer says we have this problem, or I talk to a farmer and he says, I, I got an issue. And then when you actually go into the field and look at it, you go, um, yeah, the problem is not what you said it was. Oh, yeah, I should have looked closer. Just go out there and take a look. And I know it takes some time. It just it takes a little bit of work, but it's like anything else. If you're going to be successful in any line of work, you just have to spend the time at it. So... Anyway, we just really encourage you, scout, especially early in the season. So people have been talking, even today on the show, about the cooler temperatures that we've had through much of the Midwestern United States and really all through the United States and Southern Canada so far this spring. A little bit cooler than normal. So things are a little bit behind. And what typically happens when things are behind, like, for example, just yesterday, I, got, I saw the government report and only 1% of the corn in South Dakota is planted to this point. 1%. And now granted, normally it's not a whole lot better than that. It's 5 or 7% normally. But like in our farm, we're uh, probably 40% done planting corn. So we're pushing it, but we're also in a really dry area. And we have strategies to impact um, our seed so it can do better in those colder soils. But anyway, where I'm going with all this is what typically happens when things get behind is everybody gets in a hurry and they say, well, I got to get my corn planted by such and such date based on crop insurance or based on what I know the ideal timing is. Well, the more you're pushing it that way, then the less time usually people take to stop and check the planter, to do the field scouting right as things are emerging. So we just really encourage you, just spend time in your fields. It it typically pays off quite well. All right, so we're going to jump back to the Ag PhD mailbag right now. And this one comes, let's see, all the way from Zimbabwe. Uh, Kingstone says, I'm a regular listener to your programs, and I just want to thank you for your informative broadcast. I just wanted to ask, how much boron should we apply to our crops as this uh, isn't included in your Ag PhD fertilizer removal app for sunflowers? You have it for corn and soybeans, but not for sunflowers. Well, anyway, here in Zimbabwe, the normal is to get just a little bit of boron in our basic fertilizer that we're getting. Usually what we're talking is about 0.1% boron in this blend. Anyway, my question is, is this enough? 
Yeah, and I wrote down so, I wrote down soybeans. I didn't write down sunflowers on there, but uh, when you think about it, how many uh, how many hundredweight? I guess is what we've got on our chart. Okay. You need well, roughly twenty four pounds of phosphate and a hundred pounds of potassium and seventeen pounds of sulfur. So you probably need what three hundred pounds of that mix. So you're going to get roughly three tenths of a pound of boron in that mix if you're putting three hundred pounds per acre of that fertilizer blend out. Okay. Well, anyway, he just says here, he continues on, he says, I know for a fact it's also determined by, I mean, how much you should apply for boron is also determined by your soil test results. But here in Zimbabwe, most of our small scale farmers don't test their soils and it's mostly sand. All right. So what we know about boron in sand is it's leachable. So that's our number one concern that it's not going to stick around from year to year. In our soils and where we farm, because we're dry, we're, we're really cold, our ground is frozen several months out of the year, and with the heavy soil we have, we can hold boron for many, many years. But in your sand, in your environment, you're not going to be able to. So you're going to have to put boron on at least once per season, if not twice. So do sunflowers need a lot of boron? No. And if you're putting on, say, to Darren's point, 300 pounds of this mix, you're going to get point three pounds of actual boron is that probably enough it probably is now if you want to run some experiments and this is what we always tell people just try some things out on your farm and just see if bumping the rate helps you that's certainly possible now i would tell you because boron's leachable a mid-season application there are farmers who do that especially in the united states in corn where boron is a little more needed than it would be in sunflowers uh, that's that, that that's a thought and that's certainly something that you could try as well but for what you're talking about here i'd say you're probably in pretty good shape all right thanks for that question kingstone thanks for for uh, following us online we really appreciate that uh get this one in from scott he said you guys are talking about crop residue breakdown i think tillage can disrupt the microbial life cycle and the nutrient release that you guys are after with crop nutrient or crop residue breakdown. But I do think your strip till option is a good compromise, not to mention the erosion protection that residue is doing for us. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the strip till is a nice method where you're kind of in between those things versus heavy tillage. And I think we can still accomplish a lot of the positive things that tillage does without some of the negatives. So, yeah, it may not be for everybody or for every acre, but I agree with you, Scott. I think that's kind of a, a middle ground solution. Uh, got, got this one in from uh, Lee, and he said, I've got a manganese shortage on my soil tests. I'm curious how important is manganese? And what is it actually going to do for me in my plant and so forth? And where is it going to fall on my priority list, getting manganese levels up for my crop? Well, it's probably going to fall pretty low on the priority list. But is it important? You bet it is. So, I mean, for me, I would like to see it improved. But here's the main question that I have. And I don't know that he says this or not in there, Darren. But what type of test did you run? If you're a regular listener to our show, we've been talking about this for the last several years, that our concern with manganese DTPA testing is the tests just don't show up. If you've got pH even over 6 and especially over 7, it's like there's no manganese that exists. So that's why we've gone to Malik 3 testing that appears to be more accurate in our opinion. 
So that's generally speaking the direction that we would tell you to go. If whatever test you're running says you're low on manganese, at least get a Malik 3 test and see, okay, am I actually low or was it just that other test I had that said I was low? So that's really what I would be looking for. It's now, super, with, it's super oh. important for a number of enzymes, and that's oh. what we see a lot of times with these micronutrients. And one of the things that, that we saw with manganese, it's important for emergence, uh, it helps in the nitrogen process, I believe, getting nitrogen into the plant. It helps with chlorophyll production. There's yep. just a was, lot of things that manganese does. Yeah, I was just going to read you a list of a few things. So manganese is often called the element of life. Darren mentioned it's important for chlorophyll production. It's really important for lignin building. That basically means a stronger stock and less lodging. Manganese is important for disease prevention, for, uh, for pollen, for kernel weight. I would also say what we have seen is when you have really good levels of manganese, then you typically have less sclerotinia white mold, which is perhaps the number one disease in sunflowers, in soybeans, in dry beans, in a number of different crops. So manganese is super important. All right. Thanks for the question, Lee. We really appreciate that. Uh, I got this one in from Jay over in Illinois. He said, uh, we've always been using crop oil with Paraquat in our burn down, but our Syngenta rep says NIS might work even better for us. Normally, we think of crop oil as the early season cold weather product to use. Uh, Metribuzin and Valor and Authority are usually in the mix with Paraquat. Does that have anything to do with why you might say to use NIS? Well, yes. If Metribuzin and and valor or authority were in there, then I don't I don't have a real big problem if you want to go NIS. But if I'm just spraying straight chromoxone, I'm putting crop oil with it. So we have not found that to be true. And we've seen millions of acres of chromoxone sprayed over the years. So I don't I don't know why they're saying that. But in our experience, at least in our region of the country, uh, in South Dakota, we like crop oil with chromoxone better than NIS. Thanks for the question, Jay. We'll be right back with more of your calls and questions after this. When you're up in your sprayer, remember to look ahead into the future. Because if you've made the smart decision to plant Enlist E3 soybeans, now's the time to protect them with Enlist herbicides. The superior tank mix flexibility easily allows multiple sites of action and keeps your weed control programs effective beyond just this season. Visit Enlist.com to see how a better weed control system can help fight resistance on your fields today and tomorrow. If you've ever wondered how the Farmall got its name, here's an abbreviated list of the jobs the Case IH Farmall can do. Baling, cutting hay, feeding, hauling, loading, pulling, raking, cleaning barn, mixing feed, fertilizing, mowing, chopping, seeding, clearing, irrigating, furrowing, cultivating, hitching, digging, emergency tow, harrowing, hoisting, leading parades, excavating, grading. Let's make it simple. This tractor does it all. So no matter what you're doing, can do comes in red. Farmall. Learn more at caseih.com slash farmall. It's planting season. Race against the clock season. Mistakes can't happen season. And no one helps you face it all like John Deere. Putting technology in your hands that gets you in and out of the field faster. That makes your spacing and depth more accurate and that gives you the confidence that this season will be your best season. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gain ground. 
Be sure to attend the 2022 Ag PhD Field Day. At this year's Ag PhD Field Day, we'll have way more equipment and equipment demonstrations than we've ever had before. We've got a lot of new technologies we'll put into our research plots on site, and we'll have great family entertainment, including a kids' area, music, fantastic guest speakers, and free food and drinks all throughout the day. Please go to agphd.com to learn more, and don't forget to join us on Thursday, July 28th for the free Ag PhD Field Day. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice. With powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. More farmers are discovering the power of the germinator. Greg from Iowa says, This year I was very impressed with the germinator's performance in a variety of soils. More germinator success stories at farmshopmfg.com. Boost your productivity and profitability with Soil Warrior from environmental tillage systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and your yield potential in just one strip-till pass. Now that's ROI. Contact us today at soilwarrior.com. Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio. Got a little time left here. If you'd like to call in, the number is 844-44-AG-PHD. Going to jump right back to the Ag PhD mailbag here. Matt from Wisconsin sent us a question just a little bit ago saying, I'm just wondering what your thoughts were or experiences were with putting tile in a very high organic matter soil. Now, I'm talking black, black peat muck soil. Recently, a famous tile installer told me that putting in normal slit tile with a tile plow will result in the tile getting encased and the slits getting plugged. Any thoughts on this or recommendations? What other tile to use? Okay, so Matt, yes, we have some. I, you know, I, I don't know if it technically meets the peat or muck soil definition, but we have some super heavy ground that we have put tile in, probably 40 cation exchange capacity. So five, six percent organic matter, really heavy black soil. And I would just tell you the number one thing is if you've got fine sand or silt, then I I really like the sock around the tile. That's worked quite well for us. You could go with the narrow slot tile, but I prefer the sock. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is make sure you have plenty of slope. So in one of these fields that we did that Darren now owns, um, and and really I'll, I'll just say I'll take the blame myself. It's my fault because I thought, well, you know what, we have enough slope, but we barely had any slope because we were trying to get by without a lift station. And now knowing what I know, I'm never, ever, ever doing that again. If we're just about flat, I'm just going to make my own grade and I'm going to put in a lift station. And yeah, it's going to cost some money. I got I to gotta put in a $10,000 pump or whatever. Yep, I know. But if I can solve my drainage problems in a field, that $10,000 in a year like this year, it paid off in one year. So my point, to, or not necessarily this year, in a year like we had two years ago where we had lots of moisture, it'd be paid off in a year. But anyway, my point here is... Uh, it can work, but you, you've got to make sure that you are using fine in those fine sands or 
silty ground. Sock or narrow slit tile have plenty of slope, at least with your main line. And then the other thing is you have to understand if you want it to drain very well and it's really heavy soil, the tile lines are going to run close together. So it, it starts to get pretty spendy if you want this thing to work well because you might be talking 20-foot spacings. And that's, that's not cheap. So what a lot of people will do is they'll set it up on, let's call it 60-foot centers, and they'll say, you know what, if I want to add a couple lines in, in between in these spots, I certainly can do it. Now maybe, and I don't know what your situation here is, maybe it's just a small area of a field that's this really super heavy soil. Well, then it's not this big total dollar investment. But just understand, you got to have more tile lines the heavier that soil. So it can work, but it just it, it takes some investment and a little pl pre-planning. All right. Thanks for the question. Uh, I've been thinking about this one, Brian, and why this didn't come up today. We were talking about field scouting on the show. Tyler over in Illinois said, hey, we've got alfalfa weevil larvae that appear to be resistant to pyrethroids. Uh, they're getting big now. The pyrethroid didn't work, and I'm wondering... What are our options for trying to, to get them under control if pyrethroids no longer work? Yeah, I have not found that to be true in my experience, that there's actual resistance. So I'd be curious what product you used and if the full rate was actually used. But let's just say that you're right, and we have pyrethroid well, resistance. Well, let's make sure what we got the right do? bug, too, because alfalfa weevil larvae. Now, I, honestly, if it's in alfalfa, that's probably what it is, but it's got a black head, usually a, yeah, but, kind of a yellowish-green bug with a white stripe on its back. Yes, yeah, so it might not be alfalfa weevil larvae, but... The typically pyrethroids are very good on those worm species. So if you get a worm that's crawling around in your alfalfa, pyrethroids will generally speaking control it quite well. But anyway, I, I would say now that Lorsban is off the market, you can't get Lorsban anymore. I mean, technically, is it still labeled for certain situations? Yes, but you definitely cannot use it for alfalfa anymore. So now you're down to some other products. So Besiege is a pretty decent one. That That's a two-mode-of-action product. That's got a pyrethroid in it and another, uh, and another insecticide. There are a lot of people saying, oh, dimethoate's a great replacement for Lorsban. Well, there's a reason why Lorsban was selling unbelievable amounts, and dimethoate was only selling a little bit. Dimethoate's just a weaker version of the organophosphate that, well, it's an organophosphate, and it's just a little weaker on a lot of insects compared to Lorsban, in my opinion. I didn't think Lorsban was ever that great on alfalfa weevil larvae in the first place, but there are some people that like that. So anyway, could you use dimethoate? Yes, but you're probably not going to get fantastic control. Now, there are other products like Steward and Lanate, they're just, they, they cost more money. So that's why I just want to make sure that we actually have resistance here. If all it was is, well, we just didn't use the full rate or we didn't get good coverage or we did something wrong, I'd rather respray it with a pyrethroid because that costs $2 compared to some of these other options that might cost 6 or 10 or 14 Okay, here's the other thing, Brian, and, and you'll hear this a lot of times. Universities will say, well, why don't you just cut early? You can cut early, and, and then they, will, they won't harm this cutting anymore. But what I see is those larvae, yep. what are they going to feed on? Okay, you cut, and you probably killed a few of them in the cutting process, but literally I'll <laughs> yep. see – uh, people trying to cut hay and they just have their their whole 
Bed is just crawling with them. They don't have good regrowth out there. And if you don't get good regrowth, yeah, you may not hurt this cutting as much, but the next cutting really suffers. And then eventually you're going to have the weevil adults, which they're they're more difficult to control. I used to like old Furidan. That was great on them. Well, we don't have that anymore. Parathion was good. We don't have that anymore. So what are you going to use that's great on them? I really don't know for weevils. Weevils are tough, way tougher to kill than the worms, the uh, the alfalfa weevil larvae. So my point here is you're probably not going to get the weevils killed later on, which then means you're back to having weevil larvae again next spring. So I'm a big believer in let's just finish the, the thing, let's fix the problem once and for all. So I would try to kill them rather than hoping that some miracle controls them. I know that insecticide will. All right. Thanks for the question. Got this one in from Gabe and he said, I had a field fresh graded last fall and then had uh, one of Neil Kinsey's consultants come in, take some soil samples for me. He sent a recommendation of potash, ammonium sulfate, boron, and copper sulfate. So potash, AMS, boron, and copper sulfate. Well, uh, my local ag retailer had a little mishap when spreading the micros, and the copper sulfate didn't come out as it should. There's a distinct line in the field where it came out, and there are some white veins on the corn where I believe there's no copper. What do you do about that with a micro when they completely misspread it like that? Okay, so can you do some low-rate foliar feeding with copper? Absolutely you can. But the challenge with with copper is it doesn't move well in soil. It's very much like phosphorus and zinc. So you can go put some on the soil surface. Let's say you wanted to use a little bit of liquid and you dribble it on the soil surface. I mean, eventually it'll get down into the ground. I mean, like even next year when you you plant it, even if you were no-till, if you plant it, you'll probably disturb some, push some into the ground, that kind of thing. But... At this point, when you it looks like this corn is let's call it V three. I can't tell for sure here, but if it's V three, you're not you're just not going to be able to fix that soil real well. Now, I guess you could if you wanted to go in and do some cultivation and get it down into the ground a little bit. So that, that's true, but you've the the crops already hurt. The damage is already done. I'm kind of curious so really what stinks. the soil test level is and how much they put out there cuz I'm wondering could they put another application out of just copper and get it spread evenly across the field? Would that be the ultimate solution? I mean, right now you've already got crop up, so too late. Now foliar is your only shot. But after this crop is harvested, that's about well, the only thing you could do or well, you do a bunch of tillage and move things around, but he just had the field leveled. Yeah, but I, I mean, I'm not worried about the, the leveling thing. That part's done. So it, just regular tillage, it's a very light tillage is really all you need to do to get that copper down into the ground. But what I'm after here is, too, I do some tissue analysis and let's find out, okay, is it actually the copper that's causing the problem? Now, if it's right to the line, the odds are pretty high. Yep. That's true, but you also had some other things in here. Is there a little bit of boron issue? Is there some ammonium sulfate issue? I mean, I don't I don't know. I'm just saying before you go spending a bunch of money trying to do some foliar feeding, which isn't cheap if you're going to do it multiple times, then I, I, I'd like to know 100% for sure, is that truly my problem? So I do a little more testing. All right. Thanks for the question. We really appreciate that. And thanks to you for listening today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio. Music.